Hey, J. Crew, it's Josh, the producer of Unorthodox, with a holiday week episode a little early for you so you can listen while you prep. Right now, as I hit publish on this episode, it's likely that Liel is elbow deep in a turkey, Mark is wrestling with a tofurkey, and Stephanie is trying to get those little pilgrim shoes on her cat. What that means is I have you all to myself. So, this week, right before America's favorite secular holiday, Thanksgiving, we're bringing you our live show from Detroit, plus an extra interview from just up the road in Ann Arbor. All three interviews we're featuring are food-related, and while that seems like an obvious choice for our most gluttonous holiday, it's really about something deeper. Each of these interviews shows a unique perspective on how the way we eat and feed each other can reflect a deeper sense of who we are as individuals and society. From a baker working to refocus attention on the Paris of the Midwest, to the bagel yay carrying on a family tradition, and finally to the Emma Goldman-inspired anarchist who's been serving up incredible Rubens for 40 years, each interview gives a different look on how food reflects who we are. So as you think about whatever you're doing this holiday, use this as a chance to reflect back on not just how we value the tastes of what we're doing, but how we also reflect what's most important to us in how we break bread with each other. Happy Thanksgiving and happy listening for all of us. Producer Josh Cross, everyone. Producer Josh Cross, everyone, yeah. Um, so... Are we ready? You say JCC of Metro Detroit? Is that like that's the styling? It's not Detroit Metro JCC or the Detroit... The J. The J. Thank you. The J without walls. Ooh, okay, ready? Hello, JCC of Metro Detroit. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by my co-hosts, Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibowitz. Happy Cheshvan to you. Hello. And Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. I will say, my name, my name is first in the script, but you went to him first. I went to him first because I think your name has been first in the script for a few weeks now, and I try to switch it up, and these guys are very, very um, competitive about it. He's bringing the it. patriarchy back. <laughs> That's right. Let's figure it's almost 2020. It's time for some change. We are excited to be the guests of the 68th Annual Detroit Jewish Book Fair. And tonight, we have two incredible, doughy, gluten-filled guests for you. We are joined by Jackie Victor, the CEO of Avalon International Breads. and local hero Phil Goldsmith from the Detroit Institution New York Bagel. So it's very exciting to be here in Henry Ford's hometown. Um, I've been waiting. If only he could see us now. If only he could see us now. Like, you know what? I was sort of right about everything I said about them. They're really not that bright. They take over the podcasting world. They're just all what they're doing. Like, these are the people taking over the world? Nah. Um, anyway, but so good to be here. We get in today and we perform our tradition of going straight to a, a local delicatessen. We went to Stage Deli. So there was the other one we were going to go to. There's always two. There, what's the other one? It's something with an S? Steve, so can we do a show of hands? Who's Stage Jelly? Oh, yeah, show, let's do applause so people can hear it on the podcast. Stage Jelly. Okay, Steve's Deli. Wow. Oh. It's about so, a tie. So, pickles and rye. Pickles and rye. I think that was farther from us. That's so a deli we never go to. <laughs> But so we ended up picking stage jelly because it was closer to our hotel. But we heard they're pretty neck and neck. But is it drama? Yeah, do they have a, is there a feud? No, they get along? Does anyone go to both? 
Okay, okay. So that's all we need to know. They're, okay. they're peaceful people yeah, here. They're not like us. What was the city? Was it Cleveland? Cleveland where it was yeah. Jax and Corky and Lenny's? Yeah. yeah. Is that right? And it's drama. You don't, if, like, if they show up at the same Cineplex, they have to go to different movies. I mean, it's really, there's real drama there. And when people heard we'd gone to Jax, there was, there was a real f- a chill in the room. The Corky and Lenny's people but turned their back on us. now, because of that trip, I have a sweatshirt at the office, my office sweatshirt. It says, I'm kind of a big dill on it from Yes, Jax. I have that shirt. So I literally wrap that deli every day. So um, look, as, as the warlike member of this panel, which is, by the way, why I'm sitting at a considerable distance from my other co-host all the way to the right. And from you guys. Uh, that's true. Safe uh, from everything. He's a Jew without I, walls. I'm going to go uh, to go out uh, and 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 say something that I hope uh, will be controversial, which is this. So, people who listen to the show may know that uh, I believe bagels, uh, and we'll talk a lot about them very soon. I believe bagels to be the least Jewish food in America. Today, you could get be, something be specific in the airport in Memphis. Or like frozen in every section. Like that is something that we gave the world and we no longer require. I'm going to say that Delhi has been bageled. Delhi is no longer a Jewish thing. If you could go somewhere and eat food that was very delicious, but it has like a cheeseburger and a shrimp scampi on the menu, it's like America, yeah. take our pastrami sandwiches and enjoy life. We'll find. But we've basically else. given them some additions to the diner menu at this yes. point. And it's a good diner menu, but frankly, yeah, you're like shrimp scampi, cheeseburger, ham and cheese, pastrami. Whatever. They had Dr. Brown's, so it's they basically did. kosher by me. They had a strong <laughs> so, they had a strong soda game. But is there the place like that's really just like cured meats and rye bread? Or no, you don't have that. Pickles place. and rye? No. Yeah. I think it's a matter of clientele, right? Like you people want more than just a deli sandwich in certain places, right? Like I, I don't know. I think that people want to go there and get shrimp scampi. I understand that. On the other hand, my grandpa Walter survived to the age of ninety-six on a diet of corned beef and Hire's root beer. <laughs> and that was really what he felt like. And Goldenberg's peanut shoes. Like it was corned beef, Hire's root beer, Goldenberg's peanut shoes. That's all he ate. He was also married seven times, so... No, that was different. No, no, no. Oh, that was the other grandpa. This was Grandpa Walter, who was married (laughs) once for 56 years. So he kept it stable by basically (laughs) only eating smoked meat. And then after my grandmother died, he took up with Vera Malamud, and that went 15 more years. Scandalous. So, no, not... Well, she had been the daughter of friends of theirs. Bernard. (laughs) No, I mean, she was... When they took up together, he was 80 and she was 70. But back in the 1940s, they'd been friends with her parents, who were like 22 when they got married and she was 12. So, but you know, anyway. Can we get some news of the Jews? Jews who aren't us, you mean? Yeah, yeah, enough. Enough about us. Enough about us. Is that even possible? Liel, take us to some news of the Jews from Israel. What's going on in your natal country right now? One of the greatest legal stories from the Jewish state's history. A rabbinic court in Jerusalem uh, was required to adjudicate the following case. A famous rabbi in the city of Bet Shemesh, which is a largely religious city, was really upset that a woman who's a scholar and activist and the daughter of another famous rabbi was sort of intervening in the upcoming election to that city's mayorality. And so he called her a name. He called her a bad word. He slandered her. He slandered slandered her her with one specific bad word that was uh, deemed so horrible, so unthinkable, so unspeakably offensive that the rabbinic court decreed that he had to pay 20,000 shekels in compensation. How many shekels is that? Like how many falafels can you get? But you know, that's that's a significant amount of money for for using (laughs) one bad word. So what what do you think that word might be? What did he call it? Why don't you do some audience participation? Let's start with audience participation. Feel free. What's the most horrible, loathsome thing you could call someone in Israel? Zona. Zona whore. Uh, whore. No. Great. 
Goodbye, bitch. Great. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so you're getting warmer. The rabbi said, "She uh, is worse than a goy." Right. She is a damn evildoer for which he was not required to pay any compensation. She will have a hard time when she meets her maker. Completely fine. She is a reformed Jew. <laughs> 20,000 shekels cash. Wow. It's unbelievable. The actual word, if you look at the articles in Hebrew, he calls her reformit. 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 And everyone like, <gasps> reform you woman. didn't just call her that. <laughs> I would like to be in like the bait din when they were like gavel, gavel, gavel. No. That's, a, that's a great law and order spinoff in the rabbinic justice system. <laughs> People are protected by two equal. Reform based offenses that's are considered right. especially heinous. We will ensure the woman can't get a divorce and she may not be called a reformed Jew. Okay, I have something from America. What's going on here? Okay, Marilyn Monroe. A few months ago, her like her siddur, her, her prayer book was up for auction. I guess someone has like since found a lot of her stuff. The latest thing is her menorah, which could be yours for $150,000. Um, it's going on auction. This is my favorite sentence in this article by JTA. Monroe came to own a menorah when she converted to Judaism to marry playwright Arthur Miller. The brass-plated candelabra, sounds beautiful, has a wind-up mechanism at its base that plays Israel's national anthem. <laughs> nope, that's not, that's not the punchline. That is not the punchline. This is the best thing ever. Miller's parents bought it for Monroe. So this is like something that she got from her in-laws and was just like, right. no. So listen, <laughs> Like Marilyn, be a little more subtle. Yeah, Marilyn, listen, um, here's a menorah. We hope you use it. It's the most passive aggressive. Anyway, ever. so it could be any one of yours. Any we all go yours. in together. Only $150,000. That's the starting offer. And it sings, happy Hanukkah to you. <laughs> happy Hanukkah, Mr. President. It's like a very sexy hatikva. Do you think she ever used it? I don't think like, so. Like, is there some wax? I want well, her to be like... So the prayer book was pretty used. Okay. Um, so that was really interesting. People wanted that. Marilyn definitely used it. There was no way that she didn't, you know, light candles and sing some mouse tour for, <laughs> for the ages. I'm, I'm, that's a movie right there. That totally is a movie. The last Hanukkah of Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> Liel, take us for the last bit of News of the Jews back to uh, to the Middle East. Back back to my region. Back to your people, back to your ba beats. Back to where bearded fanatics That's right. uh, rule the day. That's right. So this is a story out of Afghanistan, uh, the, the parts of which are still jauntily ruled by the Taliban. Um, the Taliban has apparently imprisoned uh, one of the country's two remaining Jews. The charge for the imprisonment was arguing with the other Jew. <laughs> Which is amazing. If these guys heard our podcast, it would be like, uh, they, all of them have to go to prison. I, I want to say that... Then, oh, oh, sorry, on, sorry, sorry. the story's not over. Okay. Then the other Jew left, making the one Jew currently in prison the only Jew in Afghanistan, right? He's who, in Taliban Who was he going to argue with? <laughs> That's the thing. He has now been released from prison because according to the article, he was just too annoying. <laughs> It's like, do you like the torture? It's like, what's not to like about the torture? <laughs> At some point, it's like, why are you answering everything with a question? Like, get out of here. He's like, it could be worse. Like, uh, <laughs> such small portions. Bring up a Jew of the week. Yeah, let's have a guess. Let's bring up a Jew of the week. All right. We're starting with 
Jackie. Jackie Victor is the CEO and co-founder of Avalon International Breads. She is amazing. Welcome. Who here has tasted her fine breads? Yeah. Welcome. Well, Welcome. Hi. When we booked this show, we were told, this is the person you need to talk to about Detroit. It was like she's about the food. Nate Strauss of Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I just want to say that my, uh, my grandfather, my father, my mother, everybody would be really surprised to hear that. You, you tried to run so far away. And yet I, did, pulled, I did. I did. The Jewish here community I am. pulled you I back. Did, you I out. did. And I'd afraid. like to even get to Detroit. I, I, I want to ask you a sort of sensitive you know, question. How are you holding up against the anti-gluten mafia? <laughs> Big celiac. Yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say that the mecca of baked goods in Detroit is right here, New York Bagel. Everyone loves New York Bagel, so I just want to, like, honor. No, we'll get to him. We're talking about you right now. I know, I know. I love but how, the, like, it's like when, 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 when people who work with flour is here, it's just like respect. 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 Exactly. Respect. Exactly. Respect. respect. It's like a secret right. handshake. Secret handshake. Right. They dust each other with some flour. <laughs> so here's the deal. Yeah. The deal is this is a metropolitan area of, like, what, 3 million people or so? Detroit is now a city. When I moved there, it was 1.1 million. It used to be, like, I think 2 million, and now it's, like, 600,000. So the truth is, we were for many, many years the only fresh bakery in Detroit, in the city. So there's like a lot of people for one bakery. So gluten, no gluten, there's like, there's a lot of people here. So we're, we're holding up pretty good. But when you hear the sort of like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sensitive to gluten. It's like, no, no, you're not. You're just hanging no. on to some fad diet. Do you get upset? As a baker, like, does it hurt your pride? No, no, it doesn't. You're, you're I get inclusive. it. I actually get it. You're okay. Yeah. We'll no, make you. No, I'm okay. We, I mean, we've been through different trends. The thing that we did really early on, and it wasn't really a plan, it was some anarchist baker who worked for us and lived in an anarchist collective and said, this is like, <laughs> this is like, you know, 20, when we opened, like 22 years ago. And, um, and she's like, you know, I got all these friends who are vegan. And we're like, what's vegan? She's like, yeah, it's really crazy. Like no animal products. Some of them don't even use honey because they say they're like bee slaves or something like that. <laughs> and she's like, it's crazy. And we're like, that's weird. And she's like, would you mind if I just- Bee slaves. Oh yeah, my God. Yeah, that's, I know. Right. I know. that's a movie I want to see. <laughs> it's like a weird futuristic- yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. I don't know, the way, the way you just said it, just, yeah. 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 yeah, I don't want that. And so then she's like, would you mind if I take some of the recipes and just kind of, you know, play with them and make them vegan? And we didn't know what we were doing anyway, so we're like, sure, go for it. And so she did. And so those are still some of our best-selling products. And now, actually, people know what vegan is. So that kind of has, like, played to our advantage, whereas gluten played to our disadvantages. But there's just so much food out there, and so... There's enough people here to eat. What I'm wondering is what's going to happen with this whole generation of kids who literally eat nothing but pizza. That's what I want to know. So I'm not worried about the people who aren't eating gluten. I'm worried about the kids who eat pizza three times a day. That's and all my, of New and my child and my That's child all we do in New Haven. Yeah, but at least you guys eat good pizza That's three true. times a day. And we're true. talking, you know, no disrespect, Little Caesars three times a day. Well, at least they're consuming gluten. Well, yeah, that's kind of my point. So anyway, I'm not, I'm not so worried. Okay. You know, I'm anxious about a lot of things. I'm Jewish. Don't, don't get me you wrong. You don't put your anxiety but there. I yeah, see I got, it. I got a lot. There's a lot right in this day and age. There's okay. a lot of things. We'll being get there. You, you can also lie down if you want. You know, we can pull a couch <laughs> oh, out. We're, we're here thank for, a, we're here for everything. That'd be a fun way to do a show. Is just have a sofa. Yeah. And just each guest comes up. We, we put them on the couch. Yeah. That would be great. Yeah. So. How do you become a baker? Tell us your story. Actually, the truth is, true fact, I'm really not a baker. I know how to bake, and I learned how to bake, but what I really did is I wanted to do something. I grew up in the suburbs. My dad grew up in the city, 
lived in a neighborhood that he adored, and his dad was a, an immigrant, first generation, and he just told all these amazing stories of Detroit, and Detroit that he loved. And he told a story about before the expressway came through that destroyed Hastings Street, Paradise Valley, for the highway. He said before that happened, his view of the world was that 97% of the world was black, and the other 3% was Jewish. Because it was, it was an African-American neighborhood that was the, the entertainment district, the Jew joints, is actually the largest concentration of African-American-owned businesses in the country. And then, because of redlining, there were very few neighborhoods where Jewish people could live. And so his family and the Mondries and the Robinsons and many other families who went on to do great things in the Jewish community lived there. And so I grew up with that. And yet, growing up, we lived in the suburbs as many Jewish people moved to the suburbs and many white people moved to the suburbs. And I grew up going back and forth between the city and the suburbs and noticing that there was this huge difference because this city, while I was born in 1965, and so this is in the 70s, and I'm watching it from the backseat of our you know, station wagon. And I'm, I'm asking, sorry to interrupt. What kind of station wagon was it? Oh, you know, I just, I, lo- I just, I, I love this. station wagons. Sucking wooden panels, oh, yeah. yeah. Yes, big, yes, beautiful. Yes. Just, all, all I know is. Was it a Plymouth Valari like my no, mom's? No, no, it was not a Plymouth. It was definitely not a Plymouth. But all, all I know is I don't think there was a seatbelt in it. Nice. <laughs> yeah, well, for sure. And would you sit in the way back and well, stare out the back? For as sure. You were, nice. For sure. Okay. So, so it was, you know. And, and even the kids had cigarette lighters. That's right. <laughs> my that's windows right. I mean, I think my parents were drinking martinis in the front, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah, that's, right? That's Those were the days. Those were the days. now we're worrying about gluten. all better back then. Right, it was. Yeah. It was so good. So so in uh, Detroit, we have two huge expressways, and one is the lodge, and so I would drive back and forth between the city and the suburbs, because actually my parents went down the city quite a bit, and I was noticing this increased disparity between the city and the suburbs. And I was asking my parents, this is after the, the insurrection, this is after 1965, and I'm asking my parents, what is going on here? And it was obviously, it was racial, and it was economic, and they just didn't have a good answer. So I went to U of M looking kind of for answers, and I met these amazing people, Jimmy and Grace Boggs, visionary grassroots activists from the east side, and they started talking about this new way that they were taught thinking about revitalizing Detroit. And it was neighbor by neighbor, block by block, business by business, and sustainable communities. And I thought, that's what I want to do. And I was political, I was a revolutionary, and I had done some baking at a little volunteer co-op bakery. It wasn't even like baking. They let me slice the bread, I think, maybe. In Ann Arbor. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> bee slaves. And I just thought this is an honest way to make a living. But I mean, I was really fighting hard for the revolution and everything else. But I decided to come back to Detroit, and I had this idea of this bakery in my head. And so I met my then partner at the time, Ann Peralt, and we decided to give it a try. And we weren't bakers, but we wanted to do something. Jimmy said, Jimmy Boggs said, don't wait for the man to give you your job, make your own bread, build your own bikes, fix your own shoes. And so that's what we did. This is beautiful, but but I need some, I need some help here. I really fucking love this city. It's I don't see this often. I don't see it in every city I go. No, Leo hates I most places. I love Detroit. I've never heard if you say that. If I was not living in the hellhole that is Manhattan, this is where I'd be. Yet anytime I talk to people about how excited I am to come here, they're like, oh, help me kind of dispel the misconceptions. What is it that the rest of the country, what bad things, wrong things, do people outside of Detroit believe? What don't we know? 
well, what do we need to learn? I think a lot of people, even who lived in the suburbs for many, many years, and certainly when I moved there, had a misconception. Or it wasn't even a misconception. It was just fears about what the reality was. And the reality was, it was a city that was the Paris of the Midwest. And the busiest, where one of our new stores is in downtown, it was the busiest street in America in 1940s. A million people were going across Woodward at Grand River back and forth every day. A million people a day going back and forth. So this was, you know, the Paris of the Midwest. Well, of course, everything that happened in every other city happened even more so in Detroit. And so when it emptied out, deindustrialization, white flight, all of that, and people felt like the city was empty. The city was bereft. The city was too dangerous. I mean, our landlord told us in 1997, he told us that our neighborhood wasn't ready for windows. The landlord Jesus. told us our neighborhood wasn't That's ready bleak. for windows. That is so bleak. That is bleak. <laughs> Not ready for windows. But you know what? We knew that he was full of shit because we knew that there was this city that was so full of soul. And even though it didn't look like a New York and it didn't look like a Chicago, it had a kind of heart and a kind of grit that very few places have. The other thing that's true is Detroit, because it is largely African-American and so many people came up with the Great Migration. One of the things that's interesting, I didn't move to Detroit to live in a great city. I actually kind of lived new to Detroit because I didn't really want to live in a city. And Detroit was like, we used to say it's the world's largest small town. I mean, I, there's nowhere where I go where I'll be walking on the street or going for a run. Everyone, hi, 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 hi. It's amazing to me. It's just a very Hamish. It honestly is a very Hamish place. The crime rate was high. There was a lot of things that happened that created a lot of alienation between the black and white community. But the truth of the matter is the soul of Detroit has always been amazing. It's always always been great and it's great now but it was great 20 years ago so I think it's the you know it's the fear it's it's like anti-semitism it's everything you know are there wealthy Jews well of course there are wealthy Jews but that doesn't mean that the stereotype is correct that all Jews are wealthy and all Jews are this and all Jews are that racism's the same way and it's all based what what do people think about Detroit people think it's dangerous and why if you want to ask me it's because it's largely African-American and it has been well, now it's changing in all sorts of different ways. It's still largely African-American, and there's an amazing culture, an amazing community, and now there is also another diverse community coming into downtown Detroit, which is more professional, more upper middle class, and that's great too, but it's not greater than it was. It's like great and to me. So, so your small community bakery is now Avalon International Breads. I'm curious if you could chart both the way the city has changed since you've been a part of it and also the ways that you have helped, I think, change the city. I mean, you're so involved and you have so many efforts with the community around you. I would love for you to talk a little bit about your arc there. Well, first of all, I mean, where we moved in, where the neighborhood said it wasn't, it wasn't ready for windows, and by the way, my father definitely agreed. I mean, one of the great stories is when I told my dad that I was going to start a bakery and my dad was a successful business person, and I said, um, Dad, I'm going to start a bakery, and he said, aha, you're going to become a capitalist. And I said, no, I'm going to become an entrepreneurial socialist. So, <laughs> so he, and he thought I was plenty. So, and by the way, one of my employees is an anarchist who believes bees are slaves. So that's we're right. all cool. <laughs> it's been quite a journey. But so when, we, so when we got there, we were just blocks away where we were. It's called the Cass Quarter. It used to be called the Cass Quarter. Now it's called, it's kind of been rebranded Midtown. And it's just blocks away from the amazing Detroit Institute of Arts, um, from the gorgeous Detroit Public Library, from 
you know, world-class health system. So it's this amazing cultural institution and this real area that is world-class. And yet, people were coming and going every day and not stopping because there weren't that many businesses. So we saw actually, I mean, it, it wasn't, it was idealism, but actually we kind of saw it. We also understood that there was a market there. I mean, we were watching the kind of cars coming in and out of the, you know, off the expressway. I mean, it was, people were so scared that on my business card, I put a map, this is before the internet and this is before Waze, and I put a map on the back so people would feel comfortable coming down and there was an organization, their whole mission was to put directional signs so people wouldn't feel so nervous getting off the expressway. I mean, there was a lot of fear. And it's not like it was totally unwarranted. There was crime, for sure. But there was just so much fear. But we saw we were part of that community. We lived in that community. We loved that community. We saw there's tons of artists and just a really rich community. But we also saw these cars coming down the expressway from the suburbs every day, getting off the expressway, going to the hospital, going to all, and they weren't stopping. So we actually believed that there was a market for, for what we were doing. And the crazy thing is when we, we did it, you know, it was like on almost nothing, paid $500 a month for our place. You know, we put the whole place together almost by ourselves and with our friends. And we put in windows, even though the, the landlord asked, cautioned us against it. And the amazing thing that happened was when we opened the first day, we, we, we had like a party and we just gave away tons of food and it was really fun. City council president was there. The president of the medical center who drove up in her Porsche in her $10,000 suit. She was so fabulous. And Larry, the homeless guy who still lives out front of the bakery. And Bishop Gumbleton, the radical Catholic priest who, you know, works with the poor. They were all, everybody was there. It was amazing. 700 people showed up. And the number one thing people said for those first weeks was, thank you for opening a place where I can spend my money. That's, I mean, and so many people said, so, so that's, so when we started, it was like we just staked a claim and said, this is good. This is a good place. This is a worthy place. And we are, I mean, we weren't doing that to be self-righteous. We just believed it. And um, apparently people were waiting for someone to, to, to say How that. many employees do you have? Now we have 135. Okay. And we, had, the, we had four then and two of them were my and partner the and I. Um, on most days. On most days. Okay. So I ask this as pure, this is market research for me because yeah. I often think I want to open a business at some point. It's like something I kind of want to do. Like, okay. And you do not have an MBA or, you know, an accounting degree or whatever. Like, no, if I would have, I wouldn't have started a bakery right, in the like, cast court of Detroit. Let's just be clear. Right. This, and yet, Avalon's a lot of things. A great business model might not be one of them. And yet you're profitable. Mm. Mostly. Mm. Some years. Are you not profitable? Some years. <laughs> Some years. Some years. We've done a lot so of expansion you, in the last few years. What have you learned about being a boss? What I mean, you, you supervise a lot of people. What are you good at? What are you bad at? Talk to me about well, bossing. Well, what, what am I good at? Yeah. What am I bad at? Well, like a lot of people who've started businesses, I'm great at new ideas. I'm great at marketing. I love talking to people. I love big relationships. I love coming up with, um, with pro projects and programs and all that. What am I, what am I bad at? Operations. You know, the details, minutia, remembering where my keys are, everything like that. But, but that's what's great about the stage of the business that we're at now is that I, we have amazing people that I'm working with who are, I always say, I'm, I always want to hire people who are better and smarter than me. And it's getting easier and easier, I'm happy to say. So we have so <laughs> many amazing people who are, who are working with us on, on every level. But the hardest thing about running a business, someone said to me early on, um, is is management, is HR the hardest thing about running a business? And I said, this is five years into it, and it's true now, it's the only hard thing 
about running a business. Everything else you can kind of figure out, like there's a, there's a way to market, there's a way to bake bread, there's a way to do accounting, there's just a way to do things, but managing people. is so, I've had my heart broken so many times and I think I have broken people's hearts so many times. Like what you mean by employees who what, stole from you or everything. didn't show up or? I, oh, yeah, everything, everything. And then I think I've broken people's heart by maybe not responding consistently and then responding in a way that they felt was unfair. Or a thousand different things you could ask. I'm sure there's a lot of people who give their opinion. We'll, we'll do that. Stage, yeah. We have, yeah, that's it. <laughs> come on out, the oh vegan anarchist. <laughs> yeah, that's it. The that's bees are really mad at you. Yeah. But, but it seems like there's something special about your business. And I want to say, this is my theory, is that it, it, like the idea of breaking bread, there's right. some, so, something so fundamentally real and connecting about right. that. Do you think right. that's the, 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 the secret sauce there? Well, well, for sure. I mean, that was the whole idea. I mean, we didn't want to start a fancy restaurant at the time. We didn't want to start, even though Jimmy said, open a place to fix your own shoes. We didn't want to do that. It was the bread thing, right? It was like, it represented everything we wanted to do. It was a hearth. You know, it's a place where people come together. Breaking bread has a spiritual connotation, right? It's universal also, right? Every culture, every people, and also relatively inexpensive compared to a lot of other things, right? A loaf of bread, organic loaf of bread might be $3.75. A, a regular loaf of bread might be two twenty-five, but still it's a relatively low bar. And we all did, we had open production the first 15 years and people would just come and sit and kids grew up seeing food made for the first time. And I mean, that's just not in the city. A lot of people have never seen bread made right and it just created this culture where people wanted to be there the other thing I have a theory about too is bakeries people have to come every day I mean they don't have to come but it's fresh so it's something people would come back to over and over and over again and there weren't a lot of businesses so we created this community I mean you have hundreds of people who come pretty much every single it day. is amazing how many American cities that are otherwise great don't I mean Europeans come and they say where are your bakeries They'll say, you have a bookstore, and you have a pizza place, and you have a liquor store, and you have a dry cleaner. You, you have, we have lots of good villages that don't have bakeries in America. And it is true. Like, you want, you know, if you like bread, you want a bread every day. You wish you had a place to stop. And there's just, there's something, it's there's just something magical and something mystical culture. about it. And, and there's, that's, there's no question about so that. So, before we let you go, what is, if people are going to come to Avalon and try one baked good, what would you have them try? Just one? Just one. We can well, start with them. What are they going to start with? How many do you want? Well, you want okay, two, well, three? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two. Okay. One is our best-selling product for 22 years is our New York. It's, it's our sea salt chocolate chip cookie. Mm. There are some backstage. They're yep. delicious. That is, we have sold well over a million of those. But the one of the products that I'm most proud of is called Dexter Davison Rye. And it's oh, wait. Say that slowly. Dexter Davison Rye. Who here knows Dexter Davison? So it's a, it was in a Jewish neighborhood, and it was what we, I don't know if you guys call this in New York, we call it cornbread. So it's rye bread that was But it's like K-O-R-N, because that's the German word for rye. Right. It sounds like cornbread. I always thought it was because it was C-O-R-N, because it had cornmeal, and that's what you oh. rolled it in. But I, it may be a double entendre. No, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. Okay, I, so... Okay, so I, so I just want to tell, a, can I tell really cute, a really yeah, a quick cute please. story about that? Okay, so... When oh, we, we love a cute rye bread story. Okay. Like, yeah, this is, this our is, audience is the audience for cute rye bread stories. <laughs> this, is a, this is adorable. Yeah, okay. 
Um, if I may say so myself. So anyway, so we, when we started, we thought we'd be doing most of our business in the suburbs, and we did a good amount, but really most ended up being in the city, at least at the beginning, retail. But anyway, but we had, there was a, a grocery store close to here, many people here know, called Nina Savaggio's, I, and they were selling our bread. And so I was doing demos by myself, just going out and doing demos all the time, every weekend, and my dad, who lived in the neighborhood, came and helped me, and so we were sampling. And an older man came up to me, and he tasted it, and he said, what's this? And I said, it's, uh, it's rye bread. He said, it's called Dexter Davison rye bread. Why is it called Dexter Davison? And I said, well, there was a deli and a bakery on the corner of Dexter Davison, and he said, oh, and he said, do you make it with sour? And you know, with sourdough, I said, yeah, we actually do. And he said, do you mix it in a wooden bucket? <laughs> and I said, well, we can't really mix it in wooden buckets anymore. The kind of health department kind of frowns on that. So we do mix it in uh, plastic. And he said, I was the, ba the baker at Dexter Davison. He said, this is good cornbread. Oh. So, uh, wow. So that's the bread. That's what I'm most proud of. One more thing before we let you go. Someone listening to this is coming to Detroit. Like, what is your recommendation? Like, where, besides the bakery, like, where should they go? What's the one thing they're not going to find in their Zagat guide? As a one-woman chamber of commerce, yes. give us a three-stop <laughs> okay. tour. Okay, all right. I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to tell everyone a secret that I try to really not tell too many people because I love it to be my own secret so much, but I'm going to do it. There's many places I love. The Eastern Market is amazing, and that's and on Saturday it's great, but even not on, it's the oldest continually operating farmer's market in the country, and it's fabulous. Wow. And they've, they've commissioned all these am amazing graffiti artists, and it is really, really wonderful. The Riverfront's great. The DeQuinder Cut is this like a high line, but it's low line, and it's just as cool. You know, downtown is very cool. The Fisher Building the Guardian building, the, the architecture in Detroit is truly underappreciated by the rest of the country. But when people come here from all over the world, they're blown away. Some of the architecture of the 20s and 30s is phenomenal. But my personal all-time favorite place is, I told Stephanie about it, is a place called the African Bead Museum, and it's on Grand River. Does anyone know the African Bead it's Museum? It's not a secret. Okay, so it's not my secret. But anyway, so good, I could share it. So um, the artist, his name is Dabble. And he started out on Grand River. It was a really rough neighborhood. It was probably about 20 years ago. And he didn't even lock his door. He said, you know, if they want in, they can have in. And he just, I don't even know, he's never been to Africa, but he just had collected beads from all over the world and mostly from the continent, mostly from Africa, which were, you know, they were commerce and they were historical and artistic and all these other things. So it's, it's wild, but that's not what's amazing. What's amazing is it's like three or four blocks I, I really can't even explain it, but he, he, it's, it's, he's an outsider artist, so he's never formally trained. This all is just inspired from within, but he resurfaces these buildings with found objects, and a lot of them are like mirrors and glass, but stone and metal, and he creates these, these installations. It is the most magnificent place. It's one of, the, I think it's one of the most magnificent places on earth. Not a ton of people know about it. And if you're lucky, he'll come out and he'll talk to you about it. And he's done it almost all himself, winter, summer. It's unbelievable. It's three blocks. And when you're sitting there and the, the expressway is going by, it's almost like nature. And it's almost like an ocean in the background. It is, it's a very magical, spiritual place. And he, this is not a transactional thing. You can go, you can make a donation, you can buy some beads, please do. 
but he does this purely out of inspiration. And another great place to, funny enough, is um, a recycle center. It's called Recycle Here, and it's hilarious. The guy, Matt Naimi, who started it, is wild. And it has inside it, if you go inside it, it's open, I think, on Monday, Wednesday, and Saturday. He has curated the most amazing graffiti and art park. So I think what, what makes Detroit amazing is what's underneath the surface. Because mm. if you're just looking like it, you're looking at like at any other city, you kind of miss it. But you got to spend some time and you got to ask people and you got to be willing to go a little off the beaten track. So your campaign for mayor starts when? <laughs> now? Not Do you want to announce? Victor Not 2020. Jackie Victor, CEO of Avalon International Brands. Thank, Thank, you. You. Thank you so you. much. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Frances Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Stephanie, who is our next Jew of the Week? Phil Goldsmith is the fourth generation owner of Detroit Institution, New York Bagel. Come on up. <laughs> Contestant number two. Before we go any further, how old are you, Phil? I'm 38. You may be the youngest Phil in the country. 
Phil is not doing well as a name. Like Phil, Phil went out with Gary. Uh, yeah. Nobody's naming. Nobody's <laughs> Phil naming. did go out with Gary. There's, there's no more baby Phillips. There's no really. more. No, I have not seen at the schoolyard yeah. or at, at mommy and me or anything right. baby so, Phil. But is keep this it, how, but this it's how we're great, starting this? It's a great name. Also, before we let you talk, uh, sit back, relax. Uh-huh. It's fine. It'll be a while. You don't have to do a lot here. Um, and, and the power vested in me as, as a, a morbidly obese Jew of some distinction when it comes to Jewish foods. Uh, I, I want to say, and I want to say this very publicly, I had one of your masterpieces backstage. It is one of the finest bagels I have ever had in my life. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Which leads me to my first question. Why call it New York Bagel? Why not call it Detroit Bagel and have, you know, New York open a Detroit Bagel on the Upper West Side? Yeah, you know, I, there must have been a Detroit Bagel or when my great-grandfather, my great-grandfather immigrated to this country and he went through New York and I, I, maybe it was just, you know, something about, you know, his journey here. Um, so he if you want to come carpetbag in New York and open up Detroit Bagel, we will make it the official bagel shop of okay. Unorthodox. Sounds good. The amount of free publicity you'll get when you open up in New York is insane. All we ask is lifetime free bagels. You got it. No problem. <laughs> There, there actually is a Detroit bagel in Detroit. Um, you know, it's always been kind of a friendly competitor, but um, it's, I think, just down to one location. And uh, I mean, it's similar to ours, but... Um, Sounds but worse. like it's not. <laughs> you get some audience. I mean, it's it? a similar style. It's, I think, in general, people prefer ours. So great-grandpa arrived, arrived from New York, from the old country to New York yep. with a bagel here, started this bakery. Morris. And then... Yes, Morris. Great and then grandpa uh, followed it was Moisha to everybody else. Yeah. Who, who, is, who is the first in the family to say, I don't know that I want to go into this business? Wait, no, can we back up? Hi, Phil. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Tell us about New York Bagel. Everyone here seems to know it and love it. What, what is it? I should say, by the way, before I let <laughs> you speak, that... I am from the city that destroyed quality handcrafted bagels. You know, Lenders Bagels, which took them national, Uh which froze them and made them squishy. You know where the Lenders are from, right? They're not from Buffalo. They're from New Haven, Connecticut. They're from New Haven, Connecticut. Right? You know that because you you met them and punched them in the face at the bagel convention. And our JCC has like Lender Hall and the day school has like Lender Foyer. And the Lenders are like New New Haven bagel money is the bagel money that destroyed the bagel. And I'm sorry. Lenders is a totally different concept. Yes, it's a bagel, but you find it in the frozen section. It's not fresh. It's not. It's. It's. It's not the same. It sucks. It's horrible. What really has changed what people consider a good bagel is Einstein, Panera. Those are fresh bagels. Uh, I mean, ostensibly they're fresh, um, but they're not the same. They're they're not made the same. They're not boiled before they're baked. They're loaded with preservatives and other types of dough conditioners and what have you. But the proliferation of Einstein and then Panera, that has really changed people's perception of what a bagel should be. Uh, I mean, it was good for my family. I mean, it really made bagels more popular. Um, So, you know, and this is back in like the late 90s where, you know, there was a lot of expansion, a lot of I mean, Einstein started coming in, and I mean, I remember, I wasn't involved, I mean, I was, you know, still in high school or whatever, but um, I mean, we were just extremely busy. I mean, just going gangbusters. Because it was a food now that people beyond Jews thought was like an acceptable American food. Exactly, exactly. It just made it more popular, made it more mainstream, but it also, you know, now we do battle with customers, first timers. Why is the bagel not soft? 
why why do I have to use my jaw muscle to bite into the bagel? Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's just changed, I think, what people expect. And to try and keep pace, I mean, you know, we've tried, we do some different styles of baking to accommodate certain customers that have a different process. Tell us about the process. How does the day begin? When does the day begin? Well, we do. We have a, a pretty nice wholesale business. We sell to a lot of grocery, grocery stores, markets, food service operators. So we've got a, a lot of wholesale baking to do. And we have a baker who comes in about 8 p.m. And uh, we have bagels all ready to go. And then, so we have two guys baking all night. So it's essentially a 24-hour operation, seven days a week. I'm imagining huge, like, vats of dough with commercial mixers. Oh, and those like big mixer things with yeah, hand. Yeah, well, so we have two commercial mixers. Each can accommodate a dough of up to about 500 pounds. So uh, how, how many that bagels make? is that? Yeah. That's a, uh, 1,800 bagels. In, in That's five, auspicious. In 500 <laughs> yeah. or, or as I call it, breakfast. Yep, <laughs> right. Um, we start our production about 6 a.m., and that's actually making the bagels. We, we do it from scratch, so all the ingredients we bring in, the flour, sugar, salt, malt, yeast, water, those are really, uh, unless you're making a specialty bagel like a raisin or whatever, those are the only ingredients. We don't use preservatives, we don't use dough conditioners, we don't use, we don't use anything like that. I mean, our bagels are completely natural. There's um, a line of people who are, I think, religious fanatics who hold that the quality of the water makes a world of a difference, uh, which personally I think is absolute nonsense. Is it true? Where's your water from? So we, we use good old Detroit city water. And I have to say, I think there, there may be something to it because I don't think the bagels in South Florida are very good and the water in South Florida is not very good. That's true. There is a place, though, in, in, like, Boca that basically says that they bring their water from New yeah, York. Yeah, so I think what they actually tout is that they have a, some kind of processing system that makes it, like, New York water. <laughs> they I, just, like, I, add the rats I, and, like, I, all this I, stuff. I yeah. Feel free to correct me on that, but I think that's the shtick. Okay. And I don't know if there's anything to it or not. I have no idea. Speaking of shtick, we have seen the proliferation of many flavors yeah. that I would say take great liberties with the grand Jewish tradition of the bagel. What flavors do you guys offer and what have you tried and retired? So we've not really, well, that's not true. I mean, well, things have changed over time. So like a salt bagel used to be like twisted and hand rolled. I mean, we don't, we don't do that anymore. We've never really retired a flavor. We've added flavors very carefully. But uh, again, when you can go to Einstein and get a pumpkin bagel around right. Halloween, we don't do that. Right. It's anti-Semitism. <laughs> But we have to, at least to some degree, keep pace. So the last flavors we added were blueberry. And we took a long time to add blueberry, but we do have a blueberry bagel, which is actually quite popular. I mean, depending, so we have three stores, and depending on, where, on which store, certain flavors are more popular. But we, we do have a blueberry, and we have a rosemary sea salt, which is, I mean, it's pretty Fancy. good. It's pretty good. Now, when a customer asks you to toast a bagel, do you look at them with disdain? Yeah. As you should? Uh, Liel? You, you had to go there. Liel and I have disagreed. Have, there's feelings between yeah. us on this. I mean, again, so Einstein, Panera, I mean, they're all about toasting bagels. And, you know, actually, toasting bagels is really what lenders is guilty of. Making people Because they're want, frozen. Yeah, you have making to. Making people, you know, think that a bagel's got to be toasted. Right. A good traditional bagel, it doesn't have to be toasted. But people's preferences, you know, they, they dictate that. It's... We, we toast. Just, we have a commercial toaster. It's what people want. Can I just so. defend the toasting for a minute? No. No, Mark. Because when you, listen. I don't no, think you listen. Can. No, you just step off, man. 
because when you don't grow up, see the toasting chauvinism comes from people who live in heavily Jewish areas where there are good art, like we craft. can always get a hot. You bagel. can always get a, a hot bagel. bagel. Yeah. When yeah, you're right. from Springfield, Massachusetts, try as Kimmel's might in Longmeadow. You know, you'd I'd cross the border into the suburb. You'd go to Kimmel's. They they did a creditable job, but the reality is they didn't do the kind of volume that you could always get a warm bagel. So they made good bagels, but their volume wasn't high if they were always warm. So you toasted. We were doing our best out there in the provinces. Okay, we were trying to keep Judaism alive, <laughs> and sometimes you have to toast the bagel. And we didn't have the like 20 branches of whatever on West 72nd. So I'm just saying, it's like, it's about respect for geographic, it's, di it's diaspora respect. <laughs> Toasting a bagel is okay. Thanks. Toasting a hot bagel is definitely oh, that's not okay. We can but agree I will with say, you. you know, you brought some bagels backstage. Delicious. I don't think we're sharing them, they're just, no, I'm they're sorry. for us. Um, and Get your own. There was a bagel with caraway seeds. It was a rye bagel, right? Mm -hmm. yep. It was so good. Delicious. And I don't, it wasn't fresh like it was just made. It wasn't hot, but it still has that, the crunch, the, cr the crisp, the crust at the end of the day, which is actually kind of amazing. So I think it's, it's not just time and volume, whatever. It's actually a good bagel is a good bagel even a day later. Yeah. So thank you for bringing those bagels. <laughs> My pleasure. So, so when, what is the location that has like the most old school, like no one's getting it toasted, no one's getting blueberry, like which location is yeah, that? Uh, like where do these people go? Well, so actually when you were at Stage Deli, I, I have a store in that shopping center. Oh yeah. Right on the other, on the opposite end. But, I mean, we, we sell all the varieties of bagels there. Blueberry's not popular there. Um, <laughs> but my location in Ferndale, which is where we do all our production. and Ooh, Ferndale. Uh, it's, my, it's our busiest retail location. Blueberry's extremely popular So is there. Blueberry just code for, like, Gentile? Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, do you call them that? Be like, uh, some more blueberries yeah, coming to bagels. You know, uh, I, I, Can you move into that Blueberry it's, neighborhood? It's an unpopular flavor among Jews. So... <laughs> So is raisin. Raisin yeah. is reasonably unpopular. I think the sweet ones are harder for Jews to get behind. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. but also, I mean, people's tastes are changing. So, I mean, pumpernickel used to be very popular, and it's not now. Even in West Bloomfield, it, pumpernickel is not a popular I know. Pumpernickel is dying in America. Yeah. Pumpernickel it's, bread, it's, too. It's it, like it, it's the it's, kids are not. I have started getting pumpernickel because you're like, actually, a good pumpernickel bagel gives you so much flavor. Sort of like the caraway seeds. It's the same idea that you're getting like real flavor from the bagel. Yeah, I like As... pumpernickel bagels, too. But I've got a funny story about pumpernickel yes. bagels. Don't we all? So funny rye bread, we, cute rye so, bread, funny pumpernickel. Uh, a big, a pretty significant part of our business is uh, we sell to a lot of mostly elementary schools, and they do bagel sale fundraising, and it's very popular. It's brilliant. It's very popular. We give them a deep discount on the bagels, and then they basically can double their money by selling the bagels for a buck. And I mean, all you know, we've got schools buying thirty dozen, forty dozen bagels, you know, once a week. It's a good way to to raise money, and uh, so we do, we partner with a lot of schools to do that. And it's been going on for a long time, and actually my grandfather kind of got that going. He thought of it. He did a lot of the legwork to, uh, you know, go to these schools and say, hey, I mean, I've got a great way you can raise some extra money. You know, if it's a fifth grade class trip or, you know, some new books for the library or, you know, schools use it in a variety of ways. And one school, they called, and my grandfather was talking to her, and she said, I want to order bagels. And he said, that sounds great. What kind were you thinking? And she said, oh, I want 20 dozen pumpernickel. And he said, well, I got to tell you, I mean, pumpernickel is not popular with children. <laughs> and she said, but it's my favorite. <laughs> so uh, 
yeah, they got pumper. You know, I don't know how it went up. I'm, I'm sure they didn't sell. I, there I, was no <laughs> fifth grade trip that year. Yeah. Can I so sorry, speaking no, of your family, thing, no, I, I really want to. Let me make a, when I first time I saw a pumpernickel bagel, I was young and I was like, this is a chocolate bagel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you was know, it the original rainbow bagel? Pro- probably a lot of disappointment. Right, yeah. Double <laughs> disappointment. Biting into those things and not getting I want to go back to the psychology of your family. I'm, I'm very curious. You also about can this. lie down. Great grandfather comes from the old country, yep. starts this thing. Moisture. Grandfather perfects it, has a relationship with the schools, builds this into a local institution. I wonder who's the first in the family to sort of say, like, respectfully, I'd like to go be, you know, a doctor now. Yeah, actually, I mean, my my grandfather has two brothers, neither of whom went into the business. One was a dentist. Eh. His other brother also opened a retail shop. It was, uh, well, it is still called Joe's Army Navy. Um, yeah. Much more popular than a dentist, it sounds. Well, uh, you know, a dentist is a dent. I mean, who likes going to the dentist? <laughs> so um, I, I guess my grandfather's two brothers would have been the first to say, you know, we're going to seek a different path. My father has two sisters, and they're not involved. And, and actually, I mean, my father took a pretty circuitous route to get into the business because he got a doctorate in speech and hearing sciences and he was a speech therapist a speech pathologist he got his PhD and then he taught and ultimately decided to get into the business Um, the call of the pumpernickel was too strong yeah the siren And, and I also did not get right into it there was never any expectation that I would either by the way it was you know always completely up to me I'm a CPA and was I did that for a while and I was involved in a different business for uh, for a while as well. And then ultimately just kind of started thinking about the family legacy and what, you know, what's going to happen to the business. And I mean, my dad doesn't, you know, really actively talk about retiring, but certainly the lack of discussion about some kind of strategy just, you know, kind of got me thinking, I mean, is this something that, is this something I should be thinking about? So was your teenage rebellion just like eating at Panera's? <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, I logged a lot of hours working at New York Bagel uh, when I was a teenager, uh, you know, during high school. I mean, I was like working 40 hours a week and going, I mean, it was just always not, I wouldn't say expected, but it's something I I just enjoyed and wanted to do. Do you have a favorite customer? And (laughs) what's your order? A favorite customer? I don't, I love all my customers equally. A favorite location? How about that? What, uh... So I spend most of my time in Ferndale, um, you know, like where, the the bagels, where, the, where the dough's made. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I'm really kind of a process operations guy. And, uh, yeah, uh, favorite order, I, you know, I mean, are, are you talking about, like, crazy order from a customer? Cause no, I, like, I no, want but what I like, you... But I like that okay, one. That, I mean, yes. She meant your, what do you... Okay, so... Like, when you get uh, into yeah. the shop, what do you get? Uh, everything bagel, uh, chive cream cheese, lox, I think is the way to go. Yeah. But do you have a, is there a favorite crazy customer I've, order? Uh, Besides the school teacher who thought her kids wanted No, I mean, that, that doesn't hold a candle to like a, you know, raisin bagel with chive cream cheese or, you know, I've put tuna on raisin bagel. Look, I mean, <laughs> people, people have all kinds of tastes, so it's fine. And they're but, always uh, right. They, sometimes those orders make me cringe a little bit. That's... Can I ask you a question since we have you here? Can you explain a baker's dozen to me? Yeah, I'm we don't do we one. don't do a baker's dozen actually. We do twelve. Like a dozen, like a normal. You can dozen. buy. You're welcome to get a baker's dozen, but <laughs> I'm you sorry, have that's to pay known for as a CPA's bagels. dozen. It's actually <laughs> mathematically accurate. A Jewish dozen. Um, what does it mean? Why does I, it? Why did it happen? I don't. I, you know, it's just throwing in the thirteenth bagel for free. It's a little lanyard. Thirteenth of anything. Thirteenth donut. Thirteenth of anything. Uh, I don't. I don't really know. Of the history. That must have been it. a decision not to do it, though, because some people yeah. think they're getting 13, and well, actually, you're like, think yes, again. I, so, well, 
we do it, it the, the inquiry happens you know periodically <laughs> and, but I think Einstein Panera I think they do a baker's dozen so I think again the expectation is you know am I going to get 13 and for like one dollar or two yeah total you know so uh I, I don't I don't really get it I mean we do 12 <laughs> so hallelujah tell us about the doggle so the doggle something my dad came up with it's going to sound kind of weird but for a long time, we've been selling teething bagels, which is a small, like, it's basically half the size of a regular bagel, well, half the weight. It's bigger, though, because we use, like, a different piece of equipment to, to make the hole bigger. So the teething bagel is essentially a stale, plain bagel. The, the idea was created for, you know, babies to have a bagel while they're teething or whatever. And, you know, I mean, they've always been pretty popular. We put them in, like, a little, like, individual plastic baggie, and, I mean, people buy them by, like, the handful. People always have. The tiny handful. And then it kind of started morphing like, you know, my dad was hearing customers saying, I love your teething bagels, but I buy them for my dog. My dog loves to chew on these things. So my dad was like, well, hang on. How many people are actually buying them for their dog versus for their baby? And I, I mean, now these days I have a feeling most people, you, you know, a soft, fresh bagel is good to give a child. I mean, they've got to have some teeth, but it's, you know. It's, as long as it's not frozen. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You know, um, so my, da my dad's like, how many people buy these for their dogs? She came to find out, you know, a lot of people were buying them for their dogs. Like, probably most were buying them for their dogs. So uh, he started thinking about a name to call it, uh, came up with Doggle, trademarked it. There's a lot of restrictions around selling pet food. So you have to be, like, registered in each state's agriculture department. So in order to make, like, a bigger push on it, which we've knew, I mean, we've thought about. There's a lot of grunt work to do, Literally. a lot of money to be spent on filing these registrations and stuff like that. But the doggos are very popular. We created like a nice package. Uh, actually, one of, one of my aunts, my dad's sister, helped us design this package. So what's funny is the dog, we call it a doggy dozen, but it is 13. What? <laughs> And it goes in this bag, and we sell it at our stores, and they're on Amazon, but I, you know, I don't, again, I mean, because of the restrictions. On I'm Amazon, selling, it says for children only. Can we yeah, eat no. them? Can people eat a doggo? Sure, yeah, it's just, it's just a stale bagel. Stale bagel. It's basically ba just a, the baby bagel, but you keep it outside for like another two weeks. Question, question though, yeah. can you toast a doggle? Uh, you Is that would, allowed? In, if you tried cutting a doggle, you would, it would crumble on you. I just want to leave you, because Einstein Brothers Bagels has an entry in this book, and I just want to read it to everyone, because I think it really captures a lot of what we discussed here. This is written by Molly Yeh. She's a, on the Food Network, and she's a friend of the show. Fast casual chain that at one point in the mid-90s sported a hip industrial vibe and offered hope for those middle America suburban kids craving a taste of the Big Apple, right down to a deliciously cakey black and white cookie. However, today, after decades of ultra-rapid expansion and a merger with Caribou Coffee, calling their soulless circle-shaped bread rolls bagels is about as accurate as calling a Pamplemousse LaCroix grapefruit juice. But thank you, Phil. This is amazing. So there you New have York it. Bagels. Thank you. Right. Phil, thank you for being yeah, our Jew of the thank Week. You. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank I have never tasted me. a more perfect sort of salt ratio in a bagel anywhere, including my favorite place in New York. So those were our guests from the Detroit Live Show, but somehow we hadn't had enough talking about food yet. Early the next morning, Liel, Stephanie, and I made a trip up to Ann Arbor to check out another food mecca, Zingerman's Delicatessen. But our visit there was really about something far deeper than that, and it led us to, among other things, investigating how a diminutive Jewish anarchist from a century ago continues to inform our perspective on how we should treat each other. 
When we got there, Zingerman's felt immediately familiar, kind of like a Zabar's in the front and a Katz's in the back. Waiting there for us was listener Ellen Stewart, her husband John Kummerfeld, and their adorable kid. Then, before we even finished saying hi, two more fans stopped us, Shoshana Ruth Wechter and Amanda Stanhouse. We were lucky enough to have them join us for brunch, and Shoshana was nice enough to even help me finish the massive and delicious Reuben I had. While we sat there talking, Liel quickly devoured both a sweet potato hash and the latest book by Zingerman's co-founder Ari Weinzweig, going into business with Emma Goldman, 18 Anarchist Lessons for Business and Life. Shortly thereafter, we met up with Ari in the building next door for coffee, rogalach, and a history lesson about Zingerman's. I'll let Stephanie take it from there. Ari Weinzweig, we knew that being in this area, we had to drive to Ann Arbor and to come to Zingerman's. Tell us where we are and why so many people like us know they have to make this pilgrimage from even farther distances. Well, you would know better than I do why. You why I did you, it. Why <laughs> you need to. But where we are, where are we? We're in Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where the University of Michigan is, which uh, if you're from Detroit, I think people think of it as a suburb of Detroit. But if you're from Ann Arbor, they think people think of it as an entirely different entity. Uh, so yeah, we're sitting at Zingerman's. And you've been around for since 1982. So yeah, we, I came here from Chicago. I went to U of M. I studied Russian history, particular focus on anarchists. You're carrying the new Emma Goldman pamphlet around with you. After I graduated, I had no clue what to do next. I mostly just didn't want to go home. In order to do that, I decided I would stay in Ann Arbor. And I actually really love Ann Arbor now. At the time, it was more like it was kind of okay and I didn't know where else to go. One of my roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant about six blocks from here. So I went in there and applied for a job as a server, not because I loved food or loved business. I just needed something to do. And I had driven a cab part-time while I was in school, which was not all that exciting. So they interviewed me and they said they'd call me if something opened. And I waited a couple of weeks or so. They didn't call me and I went back and I reapplied as a busboy. And they said they'd call me and I waited two more weeks and they still didn't call me. So I went back and said, hey, I'm running out of money. I'll do anything. And they said, do you want to wash dishes? And I said, yes. And that's how the whole thing got started. So Paul Saginaw, who's been my partner in all this from the beginning, was the general manager at that restaurant, and Frank Carollo, who's one of the partners at our bakery where those rugelach are made, who I just saw earlier this morning at our coffee company, was a line cook, and Maggie Bayless from Zing Train, our training business, was a cocktail waitress. So no idea why we were all in there together, but we've been together so you had the relevant years. the relevant training for starting a business in, in Russian anarchism. And well, some it turns Washington out that I did have a lot of relevant training, but I wouldn't have known that at the time. And there was a lot of other training, like cleaning grease traps and doing schedules and learning to cook. How did you make the move, though, to open your own place? Well, I stayed and worked for that restaurant group for about four years. Paul was the general manager at the restaurant when I started washing dishes. He and I developed friendships, so Frank started teaching me how to cook. I started managing kitchens, and I worked for them for about four years. So, I mean, I learned a lot of the basics of what it takes to order food, cost menus, cook, clean, clean dumpsters, you know, all those things that are not part of the glamour part. Paul left about halfway through that four years and open Monaghan Seafood Market, which is just across the street in Carytown, which is actually one of the best fish markets in the country to this day. And uh, he and I would, you know, we stayed friends, man. I mean, we would talk about doing stuff. And fall of 81, gave two months notice over there. I didn't hate going to work, but it was just sort of clear that it was less and less where they were going was not where I wanted to go. And so I gave him two months notice. I didn't really know what was going to come next. And Paul, not knowing I'd given notice, called me like two or three days later. And he said that this little building over here was coming open near the fish market that we should check out. And he had grown up in Detroit. 
uh, where you could get good deli food. In Chicago, you could get it, but you couldn't get it here. And somehow within a week, we decided we were going to open. And somehow four and a half months later, having renovated the space, costed the menu, made the menu, everything, we opened on March 15, 1982, which somehow until I was working on this pamphlet eluded me that March 15th in 1917 is the year the Tsar abdicated. And I don't know, it's embarrassing that I somehow missed that for all those years. But <laughs> nevertheless, it was the first piece of the Russian Revolution. Well, Hashem works in mysterious ways. <laughs> so tell Absolutely. us a little bit about that original deli and then yeah. today the, the Zingerman's Empire, as we know it. We're sitting in several buildings. Well, empire a is a, a bad complex. word for anarchists. Oh, that's but, true, that's true. But, uh, What's the but right anyway, word? But it was good for the a collective, a collective? Uh, yeah. food yeah. workers. Yeah. <laughs> so the original building was just that two-story part that we're sitting in the next building, but that uh, space was originally 1,300 square feet. Uh, the building was built in 1902 by Rocco Disney. Dorita, who was an immigrant from near Genoa in Italy. He came to New York actually in 1882 with his wife and 1892 to Ann Arbor. And then they were the fifth Italian family in town. And this neighborhood at the time was known as the Catholic neighborhood, which tells you something about history because when's the last time you heard anybody talk about a Catholic neighborhood in the United States? Anyways, uh, so the building was built in 1902 and it was it's been really in the food business its whole life. When we opened, it was just me and Paul and two employees and 29 seats and 25 sandwiches on the menu and a little bit of what's now called specialty food, but at the time was kind of just weird, like olive oil and vinegar. And then uh, in the unorthodox tradition, this, this also is the uh, old middle-class uh, African-American neighborhood. So we sold ham hocks and greens and uh, we sold cigarettes and milk uh, to try to get people in the door. And it's hard to believe now, but in terms of how beliefs change, but people actually used to smoke inside the building. And uh, yeah, it was 38 years ago. Back from a different civilization. Almost. So I just had the pleasure of reading this incredible pamphlet, Going Into oh, Business with Emma you. Goldman. You just read it this morning? I did. Wow. And I, I just it. learned, which I never knew, uh, that Emma Goldman ran yeah. Yeah. a small restaurant. Yeah, just for a little while. Yeah. So first of all, to tell us, for those of our listeners who may not who be is Emma Goldman? An anarchically inclined, yeah. do you want to introduce us to this great Jewish yeah. Yeah. philosopher? So uh, Emma Goldman, well, she really is one of the great, I, I think, intellectual figures of history, period, American history and Jewish history, whatever lens you want to look through. Uh, but she was born in Lithuania in 1869, uh, came to the United States in 1885 when she was 16. And she seems like was already fairly radically inclined over there, but became even more so over here. Told by her father that the only thing a woman needed yeah, to was know... Yeah, was how to cut to... noodles fine and cook. <laughs> and he right. threw her French book in the fire, which didn't do much to inspire her to do what he wanted, <laughs> did the opposite. But uh, she, uh, like many people, became pretty radicalized by the Haymarket situation, which took place in Chicago, where I grew up, where a bunch of anarchists were arrested after a riot and ended up getting put to, most of them getting put, or half of them getting put to death and the rest putting in, in jail. And uh, she quickly went on to become this like famous speaker. And she, you know, at like 22 or 23 was speaking to like groups of 5,000 people. And remember, that's with no public address system and no microphone. Uh, and mostly they were men. And so she was, you know, I don't know, five feet tall and 
you know, so you have this woman like standing on truck talking to, you know, thousands and thousands of men about birth control, uh, women's rights, anarchism and stuff. And she was pretty, I, I think, pretty amazing. And as per the pamphlet, pretty ahead of her time. So she takes this quick stop uh, with her lover slash friend slash ideological mm -hmm. partner, Alexander Berkman. Yep. Uh, and they start this restaurant. Yeah, in Worcester, and, Massachusetts. And, and guess what? It does really, really, really well. It turns out it did really well, but only for three or four months because... The strike in Pittsburgh, the steel plant, and the Carnegie, the Carnegie, yeah. yeah. But there's a name for the plant. But anyway, it'll come back to me in a second. But so they decided quickly they were just gonna, you know, screw the business. They were going back to New York and they were gonna go to work on, on, yeah, on agitating and being activists to try to do something. So there's a, there's a moment in the pamphlet that struck me almost like it could have been, you know, autobiographical for you, yeah. right? Because their landlord says. Are you crazy to right. close this down? You're making a fortune. Right. So I wonder if, like, as a person with strong political inclinations who started his own very successful restaurant, you read this and be like, oh, Emma, if you've only stayed in this business, you could have had, you know, the entire town could have been your Delhi empire. Well, I think that it is, it is the interesting thing. I mean, all of our lives are made up of small decisions, right? I mean, and a lot of times we don't even know we've made them, you know, and so like one for me was staying in Ann Arbor. I mean, I could have easily gone really anywhere. It's not like I had a million friends here. I had some, but if I hadn't stayed here, if I hadn't gotten that job at that restaurant, if I had gotten frustrated that they didn't hire me as a server and I went to another restaurant and got hired as a server, I never would have met Paul. You know, I mean, and that's the way life is, right? But it is kind of interesting and it is my belief about the anarchist stuff is that it's actually much more easily applied in a smaller construct because trying to do it on a, in quotes, national level, it's so big, like the, the model is so big that I don't, it's overwhelming. Whereas in a smaller organization, you can apply much more of it because people are making a conscious choice to be there. So in this book, you, you point out 18 principles yeah. for life and business. Auspicious. Yeah. A yeah. very good number. It was well. I picked it for that reason. <laughs> Here, I, I'm, you, you I was may, trying to you, narrow you it down. If, if I, you want, okay. Uh, give us, give us some of Emma, the Emma Goldman way of, of running a successful business. You know, this was really just like going back into her work, and she's not the only one. But I, I have come to realize that a lot of what they were going to jail for, basically, is now what's called progressive business. And so, you know, as I went back through and started to reread her work. It really blew my mind for two reasons. One, I hadn't even realized it, but so much of what we created was aligned with what they were talking about. And then B, like I said, so much of it is now called progressive business. So pick your person, Jim Collins or Peter Black or whatever, and it's all about freedom and the importance of the individual and, and all of that. But she was writing a hundred and whatever years ago about creating meaningful work, right? Which is the number one issue if you get into progressive business literature now is trying to create a setting in which people's work has purpose and which it has meaning. And she already understood in a really deep and, and intense way that the Industrial Revolution was separating people from that meaning and just putting them into a setting in which they were basically treated like a machine part that was interchangeable and unimportant. And that what we needed to do was create what I would call good work, where people feel like they're becoming themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So she was working on that. She was really talking about self-management and self-awareness, you know, which again is a huge piece of modern progressive 21st century leadership is the importance of self-awareness and she was saying a lot about how anarchism and her version of it and I would agree you know is really about you have to be self-aware 
You have to be grounded within yourself, etc. You know, one of the most common misconceptions about anarchism is that it's all about being disorganized, but that's not really true at all. It's actually, and she talked about it a lot, it's a lot about being organized. It's just the difference is it's not organized by some elite group imposed on everyone else. It's organized in a way that the people who are participating in the organization have a say in how it's organized, and that it's organized to the benefit of the people there, not just to the benefit of one or two owners at the top who are trying to extract everything. So there's a whole series of things like that. And yes, I picked 18 because I had a narrow, I needed to narrow it down, and 18 for that reason seemed like a good number. A lot of the people who make pilgrimages here to eat smoked meat, or you know, the college students who roll in hungover on a Sunday, um, they don't, they haven't hit this morning yet, it's still a little bit earlier. They might not necessarily know, I imagine most people actually don't understand the philosophical underpinnings of a lot of this business, but I imagine there are ways in those interactions that they are reaping the benefits of your particular thought yeah. system in this business. So like, what are, what are they coming away with that are things that you've thought about that they don't even realize are happening? Well, I think happening? everybody comes away with different things. I mean, that's the nature of Emma Goldman's work, it's the nature of, of our work, but I, the, most recent full book that I did is on beliefs. And I wrote in there, I mean, when you buy our food, you're buying our beliefs. When you choose to come here, you're, you're eating our beliefs. I mean, so, you know, the beliefs are manifested in what's in there in terms of the quality of the raw materials. The beliefs are manifested in the way that we work and the way that you get treated when you come in here. And if people smile at you in a meaningful, grounded way, as opposed to in a phony sort of scripted way that might happen somewhere else in the way that we treat people. I mean, the whole energy of the place is really manifest the beliefs that underlie it. So whether people know it or not, you they're know. They're eating it. Yeah, in essence, they're eating it because there's dozens and dozens of places that have different beliefs that are manifested in different ways. In the nearly 40 years that that you, you guys have been around. I imagine college students have been one of the mainstays. Obviously, you have the mm -hmm. local Ann Arbor community. Yeah, I would say it's actually more the Ann Arbor community by far than students. So I, my next question is basically how the students have changed, but do you have any insight on that? Or how mm. the community has changed even? You know, it's a lot harder to see how it's changed when you're in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like, how have you changed? Like, you know you've changed, but like I have more gray hair, you know, whatever. But uh, I don't know, I think I, I would say a lot of my belief and a lot of my efforts to grow as a human being and a lot of her work, Emma Goldman's work too, is really to treat everybody like a unique individual. So when one has that belief, then there's not like students were like this and students were like that. I, I actually would argue with all respect to the question that it's kind of dehumanizing and that, you know, things have changed for sure. I mean, here, cell phones, yeah. you know, computers, uh, all of that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I mean, I don't know. I think people are essentially insecure, <laughs> anxious, unsure of themselves uh, at one level. And on the other hand, you're, you know, you got into the University of Michigan in quotes, so at some level you're capable and, you know, whatever one wants to look at from social advantage or whatever got you in here. But I think people are people and, and we're all just trying to figure it out, you know? Yeah, well, it was Josh's question, so <laughs> just as, no disrespect. Good question, Josh. <laughs> just as Emma Goldman wrote uh, from the specific context of the Industrial Revolution, which is yeah. a time of, of great sea change, we are yeah. now living in this moment of, yeah. call it what, the gig economy revolution, right, which uh -huh. has tremendous economic... Uh -huh 
socioeconomic implications. Do you see this kind of business model that is mindful of, how should we call it, of the underpinnings of, of the economic relations between you know, producers and consumers? Do you see it getting more and more central to running a business or do you think it'll get swept away by the sort of technologically driven behemoth that's shaping so much of American life? I don't know. I I don't really work on, I, I, you know, I grew up in a family where everybody argued over theoreticals and it did nothing. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> you learned your lesson. I, well, it doesn't do anything. I, I'm more focused on what we can do and how I can treat you in, in a dignified way and how I can, you know, have a meaningful relationship with my girlfriend and create meaningful work for people and what the rest of the world does, i.e., I mean, I have opinions, but they're not going to listen to me, <laughs> and I, I think we're going to have more impact. But well, I think once they taste your meat, they'll listen to you. anything you say. Well, that's a good theory, but I think it's actually probably not true. But <laughs> I, 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 I think that we make the most difference by doing meaningful work and sharing and demonstrating in practice that the stuff works and that you can treat people with respect and that you can make really good food and that people will pay more money for it and that you can support your producers and try to help them make money too and that we can be open book management and teach the staff how the finances work and that you could teach leadership to everybody and you know that when we do that then that carries through and because people leave here and they take it with them you know in a good way and that people like you guys come here in a good way come here and you know you learn from it and I and buy t-shirts and tote bags yeah, which I've done earlier today, and, we like and that spend too. pins, and, and but stickers, I, and, yeah. and meat. But I, I, you know, from having studied beliefs, I mean, I realistically, you can't make anybody change their beliefs. And I started to look at beliefs as the root system of our lives because although no one talks about, or hardly anyone really talks about them overtly, and you definitely don't see them. All of our behaviors are essentially are based on what we believe. Like you coming here, me sitting here, this pamphlet. It's all based on what we believe. And when we try to force people to change their beliefs, we know they don't. I mean, it's embedded in all of history, and there's certainly lots of nice Jewish stories about, you know, people <laughs> dying for their beliefs. People do change their beliefs, but it has to, it really has to be a decision that they make. And when people feel forced generally, which is a lot of what Emma Goldman was writing about, they revert to opposition instead of to being open. So. Let's talk food for a second before we let you get back yeah, to your good. to your to your business. Um, what are some of the most popular things in the deli, and what are your favorite things to order? Uh, well, I mean, the number one selling thing is the Reuben. Uh, the number two is the Georgia Reuben, which What's is the Georgia Reuben? turkey and coleslaw. We sell, you know. Remembering now we have, you know, in this non-empire, we have <laughs> bakery, the creamery, so we make handmade cream cheese, which I think is amazing, uh, which. No, hardly anybody has had yeah. in the country because hardly any, almost no one makes it anymore except us. So for me, that's a really great thing. The rye bread, which again is old school and very much like what Emma Goldman would have been eating in New York. Uh, I actually just ordered uh, from the bakehouse two uh, two kilo loaves, which is the big ones that like were written about in uh, David Levinsky and Levitsky and all the old books from the early 20th century from Lower East Side. I mean, they all were getting bread from those big, big loaves. So I think those are really great. But anyway, you have the Creamery, the Coffee Company, the Roadhouse, the Mail Order, Zing Train. We have a little Korean restaurant just up the block. We have food tours. 
fact, we're doing one to Israel later this year. Uh, we have uh, Cornman Farms is our event space, so people are getting married out there and doing events and all that kind of stuff. So we got we got a lot going on. So if you come here in the morning, what are you going to order? I don't eat breakfast or lunch. Uh, <laughs> I just I only I, I quality check stuff all day, so mm-hmm. it's not like I'm fasting. But I don't really eat except dinner, and then I go home and we cook dinner at home every night. I like to cook. And what do I cook? We cook a lot of vegetables, a lot of pasta. I'm on a high gluten diet. Uh, we cook a lot of, you know, fair bit of fish and almost no meat. I'm not opposed to meat. I just prefer to feel better and I enjoy it. Better. You're definitely we, not opposed to meat right? based on what's <laughs> going cook, on downstairs. <laughs> well, there's a lot of non-meat down there, too. Yeah, of it's course. Just people tend to focus on the meat. But, you know, there's lots of vegetables in the salad case. Yeah, that, and, that you sweet know, potato hash is amazing. Yeah, totally. And then, you know, bread and olive oil and pasta is a you know, world-class meal in 15 minutes. So, all good. So, if people want to... Get on one of your food tours, like the one to Israel. How do they? Yeah, zingermansfoodtours.com. You know, with the web now, it's super easy. While they're listening, they can look it up right now. And uh, Christy Bray Black is the, so all our businesses, we have managing partners in them. And she worked here, she has worked here for 15, 16 years and became a partner in the food tours a year and a couple months ago. And so she's really expanded the offerings. But yeah, going to Hungary, Croatia, uh, Israel, France, Italy. And people go and they, you know, it's like going, I mean, it's a little bit like what I would do if I were going on my own, like go visit a bunch of producers, eat in really good restaurants, visit a few wineries, and uh, in between have like an hour of museum. Right, the stuff that matters. And so if people listening to this want to get to Zingerman's, how can they do the mail order if they're a little far away? Zingerman's.com gets you to the mail order. Uh, There's a fair bit on the website, but we can ship more than what's on the website if they're really looking for something in particular. Yeah, come on out. Zingtrain.com has uh, all of our training stuff, which we teach to people all over the place. And uh, the books and the pamphlets, we actually are kind of off the grid. I don't have a great love for the mass market distribution system. We do all the design and the printing here in Ann Arbor. See, it looks gorgeous. Yeah, thank you. And uh, so, yeah, we sell them here. It's on Amazon, but through a reseller. I, I prefer to be direct and... Uh, it's sort of the, the farm-to-table version of books. Who is Zinkerman, by the way? We made it up. What? Yeah. So Paul's last name is Saginaw, which was Sagin Or in Russia, which means seer of light, uh, which is very romantic, but was changed at Ellis Island to Saginaw, which in Michigan is a mid-sized industrial town. Nothing wrong with that. But uh, in my last name, you did pretty well with, but uh, generally unpronounceable by the public at large. So those were both out. And so we ended up sitting at uh, his house, which had no furniture, so we sat on the floor and we wrote a list of names and we wanted an A or a Z, which is irrelevant now because on Google all letters come up equally quickly, but at the time was very helpful from a marketing standpoint to be at the beginning or the end of the list, and we picked Zingerman's. Zingerman's, so, I like so that. So far it's working out. That's but, amazing. I thought that it was going to be like Saul Zingerman, right. the patriarch. No, well, it turns out that there are a fair few people named Zingerman, <laughs> but we didn't know any of them. And, you know, remember with the, without the web, like you would have had to go to the library and right. search phone books. So Sounds exhausting. Who knew? <gasps> Who knew? Ari, thank you so much. It's and my thank pleasure. You for welcoming thank you. us to Zingerman's. Thanks for coming amazing. all the way here. All right, I'm going to take you back to the Mayerson JCC now for some Mazel Tovs, but make sure you stick around after the credits for a little extra musical content I'm sure you don't want to miss. 
So um, my Mazel Tov this week, this is from the mailbox from unorthodoxatabletmag.com. Ben Mogul sent in a Mazel Tov to apparently his kindergartner, who I guess listens to our show, which is awesome. Ben Mogul says, a Mazel Tov to Caleb Argent Banak Mogul for getting into junior kindergarten for the fall at Leo Beck in Toronto. So Mazel Tov, four-year-old Caleb. Also, the only place where like elementary school is more competitive than New York City is right. apparently the Jewish schools in Toronto. It's Toronto. He passed all of his standardized tests with flying colors and got in. Mazel Tov, Caleb. I'm excited for like the, scan- the, the admissions scandal at the Leo Becks. <laughs> Junior, junior college in Stephanie, Toronto. what you got? We have a shout out to Sarah Uziel. Her sister wrote us, and she basically, I don't know if you knew this, but um, Spain was offering citizenship for Sephardic Jews who were expelled way back when. Um, and so it ended, I think, in October, at the end of October. So everyone has missed She made it chance. under the deadline? Yeah, so she made it, and she now has like an EU passport, which is pretty good. Mazel um, tov. I also feel like I always need to give a mazel tov when I'm traveling to my husband, Ben Cohen, who is home with Cat Stevens, the demon cat. Um, who has bitten him several times. And I just want everyone to know that I'm grateful. And I also have a shout out to my two very good friends, Mark Tracy and Amanda Hess. They are getting married tonight. I obviously could not be there, but I'm so excited for them. Mazel tov, Mark and Amanda. And Amanda has a great profile of Greta Gerwig in the New York Times that everyone should read before you go see Little Women. This is how much we love you. She skipped skipped a wedding of two close friends to be here with you guys. My mazel tov is to the Washington Nationals. Wrong city. Really the wackiest, I'm a Mets fan because, you know, we don't really have professional baseball in Queens, but they won probably the wackiest World Series I've ever seen. And one more proof, and this is deep theology here, that Hashem loves us very much and he sends us the game of baseball to keep us happy and alive. I don't understand that at all. Not the sports part, I get that part. The religious part. Yeah, the religious part. I didn't part. either, no, I don't know what he's talking about. It's all religious. Right. Okay. Uh, Friends, would anyone like to give a Mazel Tov? Come on down, tell us your name and your Mazel Tov. Uh, my name is Shoshana Wechter, and I wanted to give a Mazel Tov to my mom, Meira Miller, because she just read the first three aliyot of Breshit for the beginning of the year at Beth Israel Congregation in Ann Arbor. Mazel Tov. Hey, mazel Tov. Hi, um, my name's Elaine Robbins, and... I guess a mazel tov to me, because my two-month-old granddaughter is here tonight being introduced to unorthodox. There's a two-month-old here? Wow. Oh, wow. Look. So adorable. That's a cute baby. I'm excited what's to meet this baby afterwards. Yeah, what's, what's, what's the baby's name? What's this baby's name? Grandma, don't go anywhere. Annabelle. 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 That is beautiful. Annabelle Brooklyn. Oh, oh wow. Annabelle, I like you're that. being so mazel good. Tov. Hi, I'm Judy Goldsmith. I do have a mazel tov, but I just want to tell you guys, every Thursday morning, I make cholent at our shul. And your podcast drops on Thursday morning, yes, and I does. bring my phone into the shul with me, and you keep me company while I make my chalot. So thank you so much. That is so amazing. happy. That makes us so happy. And my mazel tov is to my parents, Shirley and Joe Broder. They have been married 71 years. Wow. Oh, wow. Mazel tov to the Broders. Uh, I'm Joe Rosen, and I have a special mazel tov to my nephew tonight, Michael Strauss, on his 43rd birthday. And also, he's a professor. So he's not only. My nephew, but he's Professor Nephew Michael Strauss. Oh, wow. Mazel tov. I like that. I'm Ema Lori Lasday, and my baby is turning, she turned 34. Her name is Alana Lasday. And because I'm really into gematria, 34, 3 plus 4 equals 7. So that's a year of completion or shlemut. So hopefully, um, as a manager of happiness, that's what she does for a living. I hope that she will find completion in this year ahead. Us I too. Like Mazel tov. Inshallah. 
Sir. Hi, how are you? My name is Aaron Pergament, and I want to wish a mazel to my wife, who's run a ton of half marathons, but she just finished her second full marathon in a time of 421, and it's also our 16th anniversary. Wow. Mazel tov. Amazing. Hi, I'm George Roberts from downtown Detroit, Michigan, and I want to wish a mazel tov to Scott Kaufman, the CEO of Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Detroit. Oh, mazel tov. Who is stepping down from that role after more than a decade of visionary and creative leadership. Mazel tov. Rock on. Mazel Big shoes to fill. Hello. Hi, I'm Evelyn Freeman from Farmington Hills, and I would like to say happy birthday to my son, Dan Freeman, who turned me on to Tablet Magazine and Unorthodox. How old is he? How old is he? He's going to be turning 38 tomorrow. Wow. Where is he? Washington, D.C. Mazel tov. Happy birthday. Is he interested in me my Come see me afterwards. Yeah, see us afterwards. We have not yet, as far as we know, made a shidduch. No. And we've tried and failed a couple times. We've done other things. We've converted Jews. I mean, we get mail not infrequently, you know, because we read some of it from people who say, like, I was thinking about converting or I'd once taken a class in Judaism, but, like, your podcast has moved me down that path. I'm going to the mikvah. And those are amazing. But we will not rest until we have a marriage to our credit, just, just so you know. I'm Lauren uh, from downtown Detroit, and I want to wish a mazel tov to Kate and David Zenley, who are here on their first date night after having their four-and-a-half-month-old baby, Shoshana. Oh, I thought that, mazel tov, mazel tov. you guys. I did think that you were mazel saying they were tov. here on their first date, which I was going to say, like, great friend. Right. Like, really yeah. call them out. They're here on their first date in row three. We hope it goes well. I thought she was going there, too. <laughs> but congratulations. My name's Don Rocklin. I'd like to give a mazel tov to my granddaughter, who's turning 14 at the end of the month. She's learned all the dirty words by listening to your podcast. Oh <laughs> I had nothing to we do with that. We are very fucking happy to hear that. <laughs> she lives in Herzliya Petuach, and we're going to go visit her shortly. That's where Liel's Which from. Which street? Hasharon. Really? Yes. Oh, it's like right down two... the block from uh, Yankelis. Yeah, that's two blocks from where I grew up. It's a nice neighborhood. Represent. Did we have one literal more? Jewish geography. Final mazel tov. Hello, I'm Jamie Loeb. I am from Bagley, formerly known as Northwest Detroit. But really, I live here at the JCC because I'm the director of the book fair. Especially now, I live here at the JCC. A great book fair, by Yes, way. Jamie Loeb does such an amazing job. So I have a mazel tov to Bake Station Bakery, one of our favorite bakeries here in Farmington Hills. Farmington Hills? Barbington Hills, I can't keep it straight. Uh, they have provided the lovely treats that we have for all of you in our cafe off the lobby that we hope you will enjoy. So and I have thank to say, to I, I totally going to talk about this. This amazing cake waited for us very generously back backstage. It is the seven layer, like a seven hundred and eighty. It says "Welcome Unorthodox," and I'm going to put it on Instagram. Absolute delicious. It is one of the finest cakes I think I've ever had. Unorthodox brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Of course, you should wear and carry unorthodox too. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in shirts, mugs, and onesies. No baby is too young to be a billboard for our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodoxpodcast and on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. Our artwork is by Esther. Werdiger, our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Catherine Clark of Or Shalom in London, Ontario. We usually come to you from Argo Studios, but tonight we come to you from the JCC of Metro Detroit. Shalom, friends. 
Hey there, Liel here. As some of you may remember, last year we featured the inaugural season of Jewish Star, a talent search for young Jews who want to connect to our tradition by writing and playing beautiful music. Well, the second year was even bigger, with scores of participants trying out for the top spots and tens of thousands of votes cast in this hit competition produced by Jewish Rock Radio. You can hear all these entries on www.jewishrockradio.com slash jewishstar. But here's what you should know. The competition this year was so successful that we have not one winner, but six. Adam Budin, Abby Glass, Stephanie Sussman, Carly Abramson, Emily Groff, and Greta Rosenstock. So here, in a special medley you can enjoy while putting the finishing touches on that delicious turkey, is the future of Jewish music. feet in the buckle shoes because they like pilgrims didn't have the claws that he has and so like he'll just claw through them he also hates shoes he's one of those guys <laughs> 